What am I? What is the relationship between my mind and my body? The mind-body problem is an age-older problem. One of the questions you ask yourself, are your thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, and which thing that happen in addition to all the physical process in your brain? Or are they as themselves just some of those physical processes? And what about gut feeling, instant? How we can anticipate uncertainty and predict situations before it happens? Do we understand why that happened to us? So when it comes to design robots or soft robots, one of the questions we can ask, should the brain and the body evolve at the same time? Should it be designed in a supervised way or open-ended way as we have in our nature? What kind of design we should aspire for? Optimal or adaptable? One of the questions we can ask, how do these robots can function at open-ended environment and anticipate the uncertainty? What if there's damage happening to the brain or the body? How they can adapt to each other in this scenario like that? What we are still lacking in designing robots to achieve the embodied intelligence? In this series, we are going to interview researchers from interdisciplinary field to answer these questions and trying to understand what are the missing pieces so that we can achieve embodied intelligence. And what kind of tools or series we need to develop for solving the dilemma of mind-body problem. First of all, we would like to say thank you for Professor Fumia Lida for initiating the International Workshop in Embodied Intelligence, as well as this podcast series idea as a part of the workshop. It was the first time in our field to have such a great event to stitch all the leading researchers and ask the basic questions and what could be the direction for achieving the embodied intelligence. I hope you enjoy listening to this series, and here's the interview. Thank you. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor Carl. Thanks so much for joining us in the Embodied Intelligence uh, Podcast series. Such an honor to have you. Thank well, you. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So first of all, I would like to ask you how you would like to define yourself for the audience, maybe first time. I doubt everyone know about you. You are one of the great neuroscientists in the history set. If you would like to define yourself, how would you like to define yourself? I haven't really thought about that. Um, my day job is um, a neuroscientist with a special expertise in um, human brain mapping, functional neuroimaging. Um, my background is psychiatry, so that's biologically why I got into uh, human brain mapping. That's my day job. Um, but my early training also included physics and psychology uh, with a view to becoming a theoretical neurobiologist. So that's my favorite title. It would be a theoretical neurobiologist. And in past years, I guess one could even generalize that to theoretical biology uh, more generally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So I'd like to go for your, your childhood. At each episode, we ask about childhood. We know that childhood is very interesting and how we evolve as adults. So how was your childhood goals being intrigued in science or technology? Do you have any memories about that, about your childhood? 
Yes, they're fading now, but yes, I certainly do have some some memories. Um, So what what I do remember is um, always wanting to do um, something which I think in those days would have been called uh, mathematical psychology. So really the the physics of how the brain works, the physics of sentience, um, and position myself um, in later childhood, at least, to try and get... um, a bilateral education or maintain it at least in in terms of mathematics and physics but also psychology and biology so i was as a younger child intrigued almost um in an autistic way with sort of little animals and you know the way mm-hmm. things worked um and you know natural things so a, a born a natural scientist uh, in the in the making uh, and then most of my career since that time has been a realization of that ambition to bring maths and physics to an understanding of how you and I make sense of the world and indeed you know, how, how we work. Yeah, that's very interesting. I guess how the relationship between what you say, the mathematical physics or, or I'm sorry, the psychology or something like that. Mm. How are you interested in the brain? If you have physics and mathematics, I think that's a big question. How we still don't understand how how ourselves even work. We don't understand ourselves sometimes. How this machine is working? How was for you the start to integrate what you're passionate about, mathematics, physics, in the brain? How does this relationship come to be neuroscience? Well, I mean, they you know sort of neuroscience. I think is uh, and certainly has been for most of my career. The one of the frontiers of research, you know, because you know, if you could do small particle physics, you could do cosmology, you could do deep sea exploration, or you can do neuroscience. I mean, these are these are these are the great frontiers, the you know, the great unknowns. And clearly, um, being egocentric, uh, the most interesting thing was me and how I worked. So <laughs> it was almost it was almost. Um, uh, a no-brainer, an easy choice. So, and I, I think obviously, like all of us, very much influenced by by our parents and our upbringing. Um, so, my father was an engineer, so I got my passion for engineering and physics and, and formalizations from him. But my mother uh, was a nurse who um, had a particular interest in psychology and read all the popular psychology books. So I'm a product of the intersection of my mother and father doing the physics of psychology. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. So first the question is, what do you think something we still we don't understand about human brain? After this, all this journey, what's maybe the most important question we don't really understand or maybe we don't have an answer for it yet? So, um, I would answer that question by um, dividing the problems into two areas of unknowns in terms of functional brain architectures. That, uh, so in my world, um, there are two kinds of questions you can ask about, about the brain, and in particular, it's functional anatomy, it's functional architecture, so not only, you know, what uh, physical and anatomical structures does it present, but what are the dynamics on that structure and what is their teleology? So um, the two broad ways of carving up that problem is in terms of functional specialization or segregation and then functional integration. 
So the, you know, the, the questions of functional specialization or segregation are really questions about what bits of the brain do this? You know, what, mm -hmm. How can we understand the modularity, the compositionality of different parts of the brain? So if you were, if you were um, indeed you probably are a soft roboticist, you, you're talking about how do, how do you get all the right modules and the right sort of um, functionality that, that can be ascribed to this particular um, circuit or this particular uh, computational processing um, or this actuator. Um, so that's one set of problems. The other set of problems is in the integration in understanding the distributed processing, um, the message passing. So that is usually uh, understood in terms of connectivity and how the processing in one part of the brain that could be functionally specialized and that specialization being segregated in a particular part of the brain, hence uh, functional segregation, how that function is contextualized by the activity elsewhere. So that's a slightly deeper problem. Um, and the answers to um, the problems both of functional specialization and integration are still being resolved. Um, so that's how I would normally think about it. At another level, um, a level which is not so much a sort of brain mapping um, you know, perspective on the problems that uh, present uh, problems that present in terms of function anatomy, but a more generic level um, from the point of view of uh, theoretical neurobiology. I think the outstanding problems are reflected in the sort of conceptual turn, you know, at the century or the end of the last century. Um, best in actually interestingly just on, um, you know, given we're, we're um, um, on an IEEE the, you know the, the three E's or the four E's came to neuroscience you know things like being embedded uh, extended cognition embodiment so the the notions that the brain is embodied and it, uh, in a real, very real uh, sense is situated in an environment and there's a reciprocal exchange with that environment um, where you actually go and actively or in an inactive, inactive way, select the data that you then try and make sense of your world. So um, you know, bringing that sort of um, triple E and if one extends it to um, you know, um, literally extension, you're know, extending our memory, if you like, by downloading our mnemonic or memory capacity into our iPhones, then you've got a sort of the four E's are pressing you to understand how our brains work inside a body and how our embodied brains work inside our econish, our environment. And then yeah. you get into even deeper questions about um, that follow from the simple realization that 99% of our environment is constituted by other creatures and embodied brains like myself. And so then you have yeah. all the problems of dyadic interactions, theory of mind. I suspect many of the many of the problems that one deals with in, in, in robotics and developmental uh, robotics, you know, learning what I can act upon, what parts of my world or possibly my sensorium um, I have some control over, developing a sense of self, a sense of agency that um, enables one to you know to act upon the world. And then realizing that I'm not the only actor. There are lots of other actors, like my mother or my or my father, other people, um, 
siblings um, and then um, trying to work out how to deal with a world and make sense of that world that is composed of, of other creatures like myself. So I, I think those are the big outstanding problems um, yeah. from the point of view of the, you know, the neurobiology. Yeah, that's very interesting. I would like to ask you first about embodied intelligence in that case, because we have a lot of this question uh, in other episodes about the body and the brain. And sometimes you have to, both of them have to be evolved so that we can achieve this concept of embodied intelligence. However, when we look in the nature, sometimes we see creatures, they don't have a body, they see, or maybe they don't have a brain and they exhibit intelligence. And for us as human, do you think it's necessary to have both of them at the same time? If you can tell us more about how this, yeah, the body and the brain, the communication and how the creature evolved in nature without brain or maybe without body. I don't know if you have any source like that. Um, well, that's a, that's a very deep question. Um, I mean, the, there are certainly very viable creatures and animals that don't have brains at certain parts of, of their life. So um, Daniel Wolpert you know, likes to uh, tell the story of certain mollusks that, that, that eat their brains. Once they've attached themselves to their favorite rock for the rest of their lives, they can eat their brains because they never have to move anymore. And of course, that's a nice story because it speaks to this inactive perspective that you know, uh, what is your brain for? It's to move you around. It's to act upon the world. So if you don't actually have to do much acting upon the world and you're a sessile creature, you probably don't need a very big, a very big brain. So, mm. you know, I think the problem would be, um, or the answer to the question, what is the relationship between the brain and the body um, could be cast in terms of what is the nature of um, intelligence, where intelligence is an attribute of creatures or systems or agents or artifacts that have brains. And I, I think the answer to, to that is, um, can be found in um, probably in cybernetics and certainly um, more recent formulations of things like the good regulator theorem um, in theoretical biology. So um, this is the notion from people like Ross Ashby, you know, one of the fathers of self-organization, that if you are in an agential way acting upon a world, in a way that it is um, to a degree controlled, then in order to control and regulate that world in the service of your survival, you have to be a model of that world. So mm -hmm. that suggests that the, you know, there are certain active agents, artifacts, creatures um, that are actively engaged and, and in exchange with the world that would necessarily have to have a brain-like system that was, if you like, a mini model or a generative model of that world. So, you know, I'm taking my um, lead here from uh, the good regulator theorem, but of course the notion of a generative model has become very, very central in a lot of theoretical work, not just in sort of, you know, artifacts with agency, but in, um, in statistics, in, um, all kinds of data analysis and in particular machine learning, deep learning or high-end deep learning using things like variational autoencoders, this notion of a generative model to make sense of sensory data or sensations plays an enormously important role. So I automatically assume that the brain is an embodiment or entails a generative model of 
what that brain has to control, which of course in the first instance is the body, uh, you know, right through from homeostasis and physiology to actually articulating our limbs, using our striated musculature, speaking, yeah. exchange. Um, so one could then go back and, you know, you were asking before about what are the problems in neuroscience, you know, and I said, well, it's basically a, a, a problem of understanding the functional architectures of brains. Um, and you could actually say, well, that is simply the same problem as understanding the, the form and the nature and the structure of the generative models that we as in people bring to the table to model and navigate our, navigate our world. Yeah, that's a, that's interesting part. Maybe I'm curious to ask you about, yeah, in, in robotics, you have a concept of redundancy. If something damage happening, you still can, you still could function. Would it apply to the brain specifically? If there's something damage happening, because we have a lot of, yeah, mental health issues, maybe something trauma is happening and you can't function. Is this concept in redundancy, how the brain can still function, even if there's damage is happening? There's something, it's something existence of brain, the concept of redundancy. Yes, no, uh, it's, a, it's a very important concept, uh, particularly in something called neuropsychology, which is the study of um, lesion deficits relationships. So um, usually in people who had a cerebrovascular accident and you try to understand what part of the, what that part of the brain that was damaged was doing um, by virtue of looking at their sort of cognitive or motor or, or sensory deficits. So two concepts that have been extremely useful in guiding people's interpretation, again, of what can damage to a brain tell you about its functional anatomy or its functional architecture um, are degeneracy and redundancy. Uh, but there is a subtle difference. So in my world, this, I think the kind of robustness that you're asking about inherits from degeneracy, a sort of a many to one um, sort of function structure um, mapping as opposed to redundancy. So uh, just, just to um, try and clarify that sort of heuristically, um, it would be redundant for me to, in fact, I'll try and do this. I don't know if, if the videos are working. It will be redundant sure. of me to use both hands to lift a cup when one will do. But having two hands available means that there's a degenerate, um, if you like, capability there. I can either use that hand or I can use that hand. The function is the same, but there are two structures at hand, literally, to do it. So it's good that I got two hands, because if I damage this hand, I can still lift the cup. But it would be redundant of me to use both hands. So that, that's you know um, quite a crucial sort of concept or way of thinking about um, the the plurality and the, the, the many-to-one, the one-to-many structure-function relationships that characterize the brain. Mathematically, it's really interesting as well. Um, so you, you haven't asked me, but one of the things that I'm, I'm famous for is, is the free energy principle, which um, in this instance, I think, um, provides a nice bit of formalism to think about the difference between degeneracy and redundancy. So. Mm -hmm. The free energy principle is just a way of saying that the good models, the models that work, the models that survive, or the brains that survive, or the robots that survive, um, have to either minimize uh, their free energy or uh, equivalently maximize the, um, the evidence for their generative models. 
So if you were in machine learning, this would be known as a Netlin's lower bound or an elbow. Um, so it's mathematically exactly the same thing. The reason I'm pressing on this is that you can always carve log evidence or log marginal likelihood into two bits, which is the um, which is the accuracy and the complexity, or you can carve it another way in terms of the energy and the entropy. And that's quite a nice mathematical image that holds the notion, I think, of degeneracy and redundancy. So on the one hand, if you've got the accuracy, complexity, divide or um, uh, carving of evidence and you want to maximize evidence, you want to maximize accuracy while minimizing complexity and complexity would be the redundancy. Mm -hmm. So the principle of minimum redundancy is a principle of maximum um, efficiency, which is a principle of maximum information transfer. The other way of carving it, though, gets, I think, what you're interested in, which is the degeneracy part of it, that, that plurality, that robustness. So free energy is equal to uh, energy minus entropy. So if you want to minimize free energy, you want to maximize the entropy. So maximizing the entropy of our representations is, I think, precisely what gives you that robustness. And um, one sees that um, in a somewhat technical sense in machine learning in the sense that you want, you don't want to commit to a particular representation or a particular explanation for something. You want to comply with Occam's principle and try and keep your explanations or your mechanisms as simple as possible. So in not committing to a particular, very specific, um, brittle explanation, you actually are going to have um, a very high uh, entropy explanation of what's going on that could accommodate this and could accommodate that. So mathematically, what that translates to is that maximizing the degeneracy is one part of maximizing model evidence, which automatically ensures that you don't overfit your data. And if you don't overfit your data today, then your, your models, your robots, will generalize to the data that they acquire tomorrow. So I think that, or if they were damaged, or the situation changes, or there's a, a contextual change. So that you're, because you've maximized the entropy of your representations, or maximized, if you like, with the, the degeneracy, then you are creating artifacts or um, models of a world that will generalize, they will not be brittle, they will not overfit, and they will survive tomorrow or you're in, you're in, a, in a slightly different context. So mm. I, I think it's a really important issue, but I'm, I'm interpreting your, your robustness really, uh, you know, from a, um, a statistical perspective. You know, what does it mean to be robust? Well, it means having that latitude to mm. generalize. Uh, and that basically, you know, when you actually write down the objective functions and give you that generalization, um, you, you, you end up with basically James's maximum entropy principle, you know, which, which, is, which is part of, of, of the free energy principle. Yeah. And practically it becomes very important, um, you know, if you're doing, if you're using neural networks or deep learning to amortize something in, in your robot, you know, if you don't take care of, of, of that maximum entropy principle, then you're going to run into all sorts of sharp minima, local minima, and you're going to have a, sort of a long lot of time undoing a particular thing that you've learned that just will not generalize to the, you know, to, to the next context. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. 
I'm just asking in that case about the trade over here. For example, you apply for the complexity or accuracy. Do you think we can combine both of them at the same time? We have we don't have to give all these trade-offs sometimes. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah. No, that, yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. So um, it, yeah, because um, in fact they are combined. You know, that, and I didn't mean to imply there's a trade-off. You don't have to choose one or the other. Um, so the log marginal likelihood of any, say, sensory data from any you know sort of um, human or biological sensory epithelia or any sensors in your robot. So when I talk about the evidence, I just mean the probability of, of those data, those sensory data under the implicit model that say you or, or a robot or an artifact had of how those data were caused. So that's just one objective function. That's just one thing. There's no, there's no trade-off, but you can just split it. You can just say it is equal to accuracy minus complexity, and you can start to interpret what self-evidencing or evidence maximization or maximizing the marginal likelihood means um, with you know, maximizing with respect to the structure of your neural network or your robotic brain. Um, it could be the parameters, any attribute of the underlying processing machine mm. that has to have some um, similarity to the, the structure of the world that's generating the data that it is trying to model. Any attribute can, um, has to be um, optimized with respect to the marginal likelihood, um, um, which is the same as minimizing the, the, you know, the free energy. The key point here is that that, that, that evidence, the log of that evidence is just accuracy minus complexity. So um, you, know, you don't have to choose which one to, you know, mm -hmm. to, to focus on. You, you really look at the complexity part of it as a, a cost or a constraint on um, the, you know, the, the imperative to provide an accurate explanation of, of, you know, of the data at hand. Um, and if you hold the accuracy constant, then you want to just simplify the, you know, the mm -hmm. model. Biologically, that means you have to actually just close your eyes and think about things until you can find a simple explanation, uh, mm -hmm. or you go to sleep and you remove all those redundant synaptic connections or weight connections in your brain. Um, on the other hand, if your complexity is fixed, um, uh, the degrees of freedom you have available to explain, provide an accurate account of those data, then you want to maximize the fit, the accuracy. Um, so the, the trade-off is there for free, as it were. Um, it's just that in some situations, people don't um, bake into their objective functions the complexity or the degeneracy in the right kind of way. Uh, if you forget about that, then, then you, will, you will start usually overfitting because you're just looking at the, at the accuracy, accuracy mm -hmm. part. So practically, the way that you, um, if you wanted to balance it to make the uh, your the generative model fit for purpose for a particular kind of world if that world is providing extremely precise reliable data then your generative model will know that and it'll emphasize the accuracy part of the uh, of the of the evidence automatically if on the other hand your data are coming from very noisy sensors or that's very unreliable data um, then the accuracy part um, starts to be suppressed in relation to the complexity. You start to rely more upon uh, your implicit priors in, in the model. So it may help just mathematically um, just to 
say that the complexity technically is the uh, relative entropy or the chaotic divergence between your priors and your posteriors. So literally the complexity cost, the computational cost mm -hmm. is how much I have to change my mind to provide a good explanation for, for, for this sensory sensory data or, or sensations. It's how much you move your posteriors away from your priors. And if you don't have to do that very much, that's a nice simple explanation that complies with Occam's principle uses less electricity by Landauer's principle. You know, that, that's the holy grail, provided that your prize are good enough to provide an accurate account of, of the data you, that you're, you're trying, to, trying to explain. So this, um, this take on degeneracy, i.e. complexity, i.e. efficiency, unpacks at many, many different levels. Some of them are, you know, are really quite, quite sort of practically important. So literally, um, if you've got a high complexity in the sense that you are um, moving your posterior away from your prior in, you know, in, in order to provide an accurate account of the data, that's going to cost more energy. I repeat via you know, Zielinski equality or Landauer's principle. And you'll be able to measure that in terms of the current drawn from your artifact. Or what we do is we measure the uh, cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen metabolism or the blood flow to different parts of the brain. So the, the whole basis of um, brain imaging is precisely this mechanism of belief updating information processing, where we can see which parts of the brain are changing their mind by measuring the thermodynamic or the metabolic cost, which monotonically reflects the, the complexity cost or the um, or, or the computational cost. So very closely related to uh, Jürgen Schmidhuber's notion of uh, um, simplicity and compressibility as the ultimate um, like objective functions. Mm -hmm. So you can even follow that through to universal computation if you wanted to. Again, this notion of simple compressible representations using as fewer degrees of freedom or bits of information as possible. And of course, from a Bayesian perspective, that means that um, in order to, um, you would interpret that in terms of sort of minimal messages, in terms of message passing um, entailed by changing your mind in response to some new, a new bit, of bit of data. That's fascinating. Maybe I'll just a quick question here about the design of, for example, in AI or machine learning, the, the number of layers, for example, if you want to mimic the human brain, simulate human brain, some people say add more layers, but that doesn't really help. I mean, computation will be very expensive. And in that case, uh, from your experience, when you have this kind of, you look to brain, if you have this abstraction, what could be the most important component or element you think it's just represented instead of going to all these layers or this, yeah, design, what could be the, maybe the efficient way or significant way that we can get abstraction? What's the part that you think we can replicate instead of going to the design process, we have more layers to have more computation power? Uh, that's a brilliant question. It actually follows on beautifully from, from um, you know, that, that, the question about degeneracy and structure and complexity. So, you know, this, this basic rule about getting the complexity right in relation to the quality of the data and the accuracy with which you need to explain those data. Um, um, 
also holds in terms of the structure. So if you think about the, you know, the network, let's say a, 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 a deep convolutional network in machine learning, or just um, you know, how many hidden layers you have in, in a sort of, um, I'm thinking here of the work of uh, Giantani in, um, in robotics, you know, having, having sort of slow and fast neural networks, recurrent neural networks to generate um, predicted movements. Um, then the number of layers is a really important structural attribute of the generative model um, that, that is, um, determines at a sort of coarse grain level its complexity. So a simple model with a few degrees of freedom will have one or two layers. A very complex model may have lots more degrees of freedom and may have to say 12 layers. So if you then commit to the simple observation that you can trace right back to, I repeat, um, you know, cybernetics and the good regulator theorem. If you commit to the notion that the best structure, the best architecture is that um, that entails a generative model that has the greatest evidence, then you can just score the evidence with either two, three, four, five, six, up to 12 hidden levels or layers in your neural network. And there will be an inverted U behavior of the model evidence or a U-shaped uh, relationship with say uh, the evidence, um, the uh, variational free energy that is a proxy for that, that will automatically tell you what structure is for this particular artifact in this kind of world. So notice that this is a function of the data. So the marginal likelihood is a likelihood of the data. So the, the, uh, the answer that you would get from this procedure is always going to be conditioned upon the kind of data that this robot or this artifact has to deal with. So simple worlds, thermostats will be very, very simple. They'll just need one there. Sort of humanoid robots, soft robots, you know, dogs have to do what uh, deal with worlds that dogs deal with. And we'll have to have many, many more, uh, many more less. So it very dep much depends upon the kind of data and the sensorium you expect this this artifact to, um, um, to to handle. Mathematically, this is a really important um, theme in Bayesian statistics, where it's known as structure learning, um, yeah. or it's called Bayesian model um, uh, comparison and selection. So you get exactly the same mathematical problem um, when you have different models of scientific data, statistical models. Um, so you know, you've got to find the right, the right level of complexity. And therefore what you do is you try to assess the evidence for a simple hypothesis and then a more complicated one and a more complicated one. And at some point your evidence will keep on going up and then it will come back down again as you overdo it. And again, we get back into the realm of overfitting and the model won't generalize. So getting that, that sort of the right number of levels as a architectural attribute of a deep network is you know, a, a beautiful example of uh, you know, in principle being able to use structure learning or Bayesian model comparison to actually get that right. So you know, the, the hierarchical, um, if you like, um, architecture of brains and neural networks, um, you, you're probably one of the most important structural attributes that determine the complexity and the degrees of freedom. But there are others. Um, but I, I think that's probably the most, you know, the most important one. 
So mm-hmm. how, how many hierarchical levels do you think your brain has? Oh, that's, uh, that's uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe a million or maybe more. <laughs> I don't know what, what's the right answer. Six. <laughs> I think it's six. <laughs> okay, that's embarrassing. I didn't know. I'm just joking. No one knows. I, I, was, just, I was just teasing you. Okay, that's interesting. And I'm just asking that kid about maybe a question about modeling because I think uh, you, how level, how level of complexity for the modeling? For example, we speak about sometimes modeling are too tricky sometimes to capture all the physics happening. For you, which level of complexity go for the modeling to make sure they give you this kind of insights instead of go yeah, what kind of level of mo- the complexity in the modeling you go for when you model try to model that? Right. Um, so, I mean, there are two ways of answering that question. The first one is, is, is um, you know, the complexity is not something you choose. The complexity is, the opt- is optimized in relation to the uh, to the evidence. So, as a statistician, and I have to now choose between a number of models, they would now become, say, a null hypothesis, an alternative hypothesis, and I will choose the one um, that you know has the greatest evidence. That's just standard standard statistics, and you know we do that all the time. And actually, modeling neural networks in the brain. We actually create little mathematical models of distributed neural networks. And um, we explain the data as measured in terms of um, more complex and less complex dynamic causal models, we call them. And we use the free energy or the marginal likelihood to score the model evidence to score whether whether we need this extra component or this extra node or this extra edge or connection or, or not. So practically, that's how um, as a, um, a data analyst, a data scientist modeling data, you would proceed. You'd use Bayesian model comparison, AKA structure learning. But I suspect your question was slightly more, um, when doing simulations to try and build intuitions or provide proof of principle, what, you know, what kind of models do you, find, do, yeah. do you find the most useful? And I think that, that probably um, reflects you know, the agenda at hand. Um, I have to say in my world, it's much easier than I suspect in your world. In my world, you can you can provide proof of principle with really very toy, very simple uh, examples. So you're just trying to provide a worked example as proof of principle. And then you say, you know, let an engineer scale it up into a working artifact. So I don't have to worry about that. I, you know, I can get most of my simulations onto one page of MATLAB script or, uh, you know, um, uh, equivalent um, sort of uh, high-level language, um, and of course the, the things that we want to explain are um, framed by you know, cognitive neuroscience and, uh, to a certain extent, psychiatry and, and neurology. You know how the brain might go wrong. So we're interested in in the, the paradigms that you would um, normally see applied in in the lab or in the psychology testing room. So so. You know, eye movements, uh, how do we choose where to look? You know, do we look over there or do we look over there? How do we make decisions in economic games? Um, how mm. do we understand the language? So focusing on sort of simple, well, they're not simple, incredibly difficult problems, but um, they don't, they, you know, they're just focusing on the, on the fundaments of a particular cognitive or motor or sensory capacity that we want to understand more deeply. Um, which is not quite the same, I think, as the challenge that people in robotics take on. 
and I think that you know um, I got you know personally I have an enormous respect for for, for robotics or particular neuro robotics that tries to answer the same kinds of questions but does so under the constraint of actually realizing the artifact because of course in the realization you come back to this sort of four E's situated all the real problems suddenly present themselves and, and you can't get away just by providing um, cheap and cheerful proof of principles mm -hmm. so well, um, you know, if I was a younger man and um, had more time I, I, I would probably like to um, use models that do deal with the very high dimensional real world kinds of data sort of you know how do how do how do things move around your know, modeling contact points and you know in, in a realistic way whereas mm -hmm. at the moment what i actually do is is just completely work in silico and just move around little toy grid worlds and say well you know this is this is it could work like this um so in principle but no one's actually shown it to you know to work like this the fond hope of course is that people will and i think they are um certainly you know i repeat it in my world from my perspective a lot of the um high-end theoretical modeling uh based largely upon this um variational free energy formulation of what is a good model and how you know how how uh, how, do, how do you make sense of data and act in a way to secure the best kind of data um some of those uh, theoretical notions are now being looked at seriously by the robotics community and they are now starting to to scale it up and to uh, and to build much bigger much more complicated models that can actually handle real world data from, from you know that are actually sensed by real world artifacts that's interesting yeah maybe i'm curious to ask you because we call it and i think this question we won't ask you about we see there's other component element like we have the brain and we have the body and brain is affecting but sometimes we have this gut feeling for example or uh, even in i'm reading the book for eckhart about the power of now and he speak about the mind that you are not the mind and what's called being is something beyond the mind and body and it's something mind-blowing for you i don't know if you read this book now but how do you interpret the thing because we we don't have explanation about that thing this how we can embody that in robotics if you have it you have this scenario like that and everything seems right but you got feeling till you this is not right and it turned out to be right it's not right yet so how we can do that how we can include that in a i don't know models or ro robots so how do you explain it as a neuroscientist right so i think there are two ways you, you you could approach that the first is to take one's lead from from your your phrase gut feelings and the second one is to pick out um, your focus on um, agency as an attribute of self and a sense of selfhood, or at least a minimal sense of selfhood. So perhaps we should talk about those two things separately, but in fact, I think one is a facet of the other. So the gut feeling thing is fascinating. And, and um, um, so let me just put this in context. So. Um, when one um, applies this sort of self-evidencing, um, finding the generative model that has the greatest evidence or um, minimizes um, variation free energy into a, a more biological um, um, frame, um, it's sometimes called active inference. So it's, it's basically like active learning and active sensing, but it's slightly more general um, 
uh, in that it covers both sort of inferences about states as in uh, active sensing, active vision, and active learning, learning about the contingencies, the parameters of a generative model. So active inference is just the notion that you are um, changing your internal representations in a way that provides the best posterior probabilistic belief or representation of uh, our explanation for the causes of the sensory input. But you also have to do the action part and the action part um, is usually understood as acting to, to optimize exactly the same quantity. So the, you know, the sort of the heuristic way of looking about uh, looking at that, I think is, is most um, easily framed in terms of prediction error. So loosely speaking, uh, under simple Gaussian assumptions and continuous variables, the, um, the, the, the free energy, which is a negative marginal likelihood or log likelihood is just a prediction error, the residual error squared. Um, and that means that you can summarize all good sentience and good behavior in terms of minimizing prediction error. So you can do that one of two ways. You can either change your mind to make your predictions more like the sensory input, or you can make the sensory input more like the predictions. And if you just unpack the latter way of minimizing prediction error, what comes out of that is, is a simple um, reflex. It's basically, you've got some equipment, some reflexes, some servo mechanisms in the periphery that receive a top-down prediction from the brain and then they change their configuration. Um, um, if they were a muscle, they would stretch or relax. If they were a gland, they would secrete or not, until the configuration of the actuator matched the top-down prediction of what I would feel if you know, I was moving like this or I was secreting like that. So we've just described um, um, a classical motor reflex as the device or the artifact that uh, you know, we are equipped with that minimizes this prediction error simply by realizing top-down predictions of proprioception, of the sensations that we get from uh, muscle um, actuators. And of course, I, I, you know, I can't resist um, uh, saying and assuming that that's exactly how robots work. You know, it's effectively, um, closed loop control in the periphery that's deeply informed in a sort of vague open loop way by lots of machinery that's going on. But in terms of actually moving, you're just basically sending down the set points that you want, you know, to, you know, to attain for the, for, for the next movement. And that's exactly how the human body works in terms of um, spinal cord and cranial nerve reflexes. What you can do, and the reason I went into that is of course exactly the same rules apply not to motor reflexes and actuators, um, but to autonomic reflexes that produce the gut feelings. So exactly the same physiology and maths works when you're not dealing with proprioceptive movement-like sensations, but interoceptive gut feelings. And that's called interoceptive inference. So interoceptive inference is active inference for gut feelings, but exactly the same mechanism applies that you have a prediction of how you're going to feel. And then your autonomic reflexes, your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system change in a way to reproduce the sensations that you predicted you would feel, which provides a nice circular causality in terms of feelings. So, you know, are you anxious because you can feel your heart racing 
or is your heart racing because you're feeling anxious and, I, and you predict or your brain predicts so when in a state of anxiety then your heart will accelerate ready to um, either fight or flee or um, you know, some other sort of um, uh, evasive um, uh, behavior. Um, so there's a lot of neurobiology uh, you know, underneath the hood here in terms of this interceptive inference and understanding the deep engagement between the brain and the body, but in this instance, the physiology and the gut and the heart and the lungs, uh, you know, um, that I think underwrites a really important aspect of our lived world and sensed world, which may be lacking in robots, and that is the gut feeling. So yeah. if you wanted to reproduce that in a robot, you'd really have to have um, some, um, some physiology, um, equip its body with, with a real physiology that, that mattered in terms of its moving around, like so the temperature of you know, its actuators or the, the voltage that was currently being applied, that it could regulate and predict how it would respond in different situations so that it might anticipate, I'm going to have to move in the near future which means that you, know, uh, you may want to turn up the voltage uh, you know, on, on this. And then I predict, I'm, the robot will predict, oh, the voltage will be increasing. And then it will feel that you know, differences in resistance or you would, you would have resistance sensors. So it would feel and uh, secure evidence that yes, it's now reset the voltage. So it would now, even though looking at it from the outside, you wouldn't see anything happening, but it would feel a change in circumstances that it predicted itself and then you might equip a robot with an, a sense of interception. So that's the gut feeling part. But in doing, you know, in sort of understanding gut feelings as an integral part of um, inference about the world, where most of the world is in fact your body, um, um, in, in sort of just drilling down on that, there's a clue as to why selfhood is, 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 is a necessary aspect or um, umbrella that would require you to um, or would at least be mandated in very sophisticated robots or people or artifacts if they had to um, make predictions not just about their gut feelings so the, you know, the voltage supply or the, the heart rate uh, but also um, the, the way that they deploy their, their other sensors um, the extraceptive sensors. So, where do they look? Um, uh, where do they physically move? Mm -hmm. That means that you've got this um, representation in the genetic model supplying all these predictions. Some of which are being realised through reflexes and servos and um, sort of closed-loop control. Some of them are just pure predictions. But the key thing is they're all, if you like, joined in the middle because. The generative model has to supply the predictions to all modalities and of course once you've got this kind of representation which is amodal that necessarily has the gut feelings you start to think then well what is a good description of a representation of um, the consequences of an agent acting in multiple modalities and the answer is in in the phrase that i've just uttered it's an agent but notice it's one agent a singular self agent so as soon as a robot starts to have the hypothesis i am an agent it can now start to generate and control and um, produce all these predictions in the different domains that will synchronize and harmonize 
the gut feeling part of it, the electrical, internal electrics of it, but also you know, the, ori the orienting response, uh, say in terms of where it's looking, uh, a change in the posture, possibly a movement. But to be able to do that, it has to have this singular agential representation. And you start to then get a sense of, well, perhaps just having this singular agential representation generating all these predictions, some of which are realized, is the basis of a minimal selfhood. So you wouldn't, a virus probably wouldn't need that, or some, uh, you know, a creature that didn't have to, if you like, coordinate its interception, its extraception, its proprioception, um, would not need this synthesis. They, you don't necessarily need to have a sense of self, but coming back to simple explanations with minimal complexity, then mm -hmm. just the hypothesis that it's me, I am a self, and I am an agent, and I cause this, can sometimes provide a very accurate explanation for what's going on. And uh, you know, clearly you and I have this capacity, possibly you know, sort of lower, lower order animals also have this capacity. At some point you don't need it if you were a virus or something. So I would imagine that a robot that suddenly had, was confronted with actually regulating its own electricity or energy supply um, uh, and at the same time um, was able to attend to various sources of information uh, that were multimodal, um, I think it would necessarily have a very elemental uh, sense of agency and in virtue of that uh, a minimal kind of kind of selfhood. That's very fascinating. Thanks so much for doing that. I think that's that's mind-blowing to understand all this in detail. So thank you for hearing that. Thank you. So maybe because we'll close the end, what could be think um, question we have to contemplate about it for bullets? If it's yeah, when we speak about embodied intelligence, you think that's something the way we have the brain is already soft and we speak of soft robotics. You think everything has to be resemble where we have already in, in incarnated in our bodies? How do you see the, the next generation for robots? Do you think if you see what we have already now, what could be a question you can, uh, yeah, you can say that we have to contemplate about it? I think that's a really important question. I'm just thinking about trying to provide a, you know, a, a, an intelligent answer to it. Um, so, I mean, if it's right, if this sort of notion of, and I keep coming back to sort of the good regulator theorem and the notion of a generative model um, is correct, so that the best models and the best embodied models and the best robots and the best artifacts are simply those that can reproduce an internal model of the world in which you know which they have to navigate and exchange with then that puts certain constraints on the structure and the form of the the brains at hand and in fact the bodies you know the body you're know, coming back to this inactivist aspect this embodied aspect um then you know from the point of view of soft robotics there is a natural motivation i think for working towards the kind of body and possibly also the kind of embodied brain um, that best reflects the um, the environment um, in which that robot has to operate. Um, and you know, some very simple observations um, um, ensue from that. If the robot is there as um, you know, so a robotic carer, or you're anticipating it playing the role of um, 
you know, a carer or, a, you know, say, a pet, then the world it has to navigate is actually going to be largely dominated by people like things like you and me, which are soft-bodied creatures. So uh, you know, there has to be an isomorphism here. You know, this is a very simple argument. There's got to be an isomorphism from the uh, between the artifact um, in a world and the the implicit or explicit generative model that is entailed by the artifact and the world itself. So if the world is a world of biology and soft fleshed creatures, then and you want that robot to be part of that world, then that robot must also um, be composed and be isomorphic to that. Um, and one can go even further than that, um, you know, in terms of thinking about, you know, thinking about sort of neuromorphic computing. Um, you know, could you take the sort of, you know, the soft robotics right to the, you know, to the edge where you've got cell cultures that are actually replacing your variational autoencoders. Um, and I think there are good reasons why you might think that's going to work. Um, and again, these are very simple arguments, but uh, and ones we've already rehearsed. Remember before um, we were saying that you know, the the best kind of computation, the best kind of belief updating, is that which minimizes the complexity um, and which is reflected in the complexity cost and the, and, the, and the thermodynamic cost of a computation. That tells you immediately that the best kind of neural networks for your robot are the ones that use the least energy. And if you compare the two neural networks, so sort of, you know, say a, a deep learning machine that's categorizing um, uh, um, some input with a um, with with an in vitro um, uh, um, neural network, a, a tissue culture, or some synthetic version of it, simplified you know, neuromorphic computing, then the power consumption of the um, the neuromorphic computer is usually orders of magnitude less than the power consumption of the deep neural net. So you just know from basic thermodynamics and basic information theoretic principles that that's probably the you know the biological the soft version is probably um, the the thing that's going to survive in the sense that it's going to have the biggest marginal likelihood. In other words, it's more likely you're going to find that there next year than than, than the you know the the energy hungry. Um, over-engineered, overly complex, um, deep network. So I think there are simple answers. They're not very compelling, but I've tried to make them principled in the direction of software. Yeah, really interesting. That I, first of all, I very fascinated. I think you played it brilliantly. Well. I, I appreciate what you say. I think it's really intriguing this question to be in, in robotic context. So thank you for doing that. It's very interesting. So maybe ask you about your aspiration maybe from what you're doing, what is your aspiration? Something you still aspire to achieve? Oh, um, right. Well, at the moment, I'm, I'm spending most of my time uh, worrying about the coronavirus epidemic. So I'm, mm -hmm. at the moment, I'm serving on the independent sage in the UK, which yeah. is, which is uh, um, taking about 99% of my time. So um, um, I haven't really thought about aspirations. Um, I, I think... Um, when the current uh, uh, pandemic or uh, epidemic phase of the pandemic is over, then what I would like to do is, it's very indulgent, but just to tidy up the high church of the, of the maths behind the free energy principle as it applies to non-equilibrium steady states. So just go back to 
um, the, you know, the key constructs in terms of um, the statistical physics behind all the theorizing that, 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 that we've been talking about. There are still some unresolved issues that interestingly um, rest upon um, the, 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 the probability distributions over three kinds of variables. Um, so the outside states and inside states and crucially action. So we come back to this inactive thing again. So, you know, often cast in terms of three-way mutual information. I don't think that's the right way to go, but I do think actually having a, uh, having mutual information's degeneracy, efficiency between the inside and the outside of a robot or you and me, conditioned upon action. That, uh, and uh, that's, I think, the, if you like, the last piece of the, of the mathematical puzzle, which, which I, I would aspire to solving next year when I have time. Wonderful, wonderful. And we ask all the, our guests whether do you think ego is important for you? Do you think ego is sometimes important for you? Ego? Yeah. Um, yes, I'm sure it is. Mm. You're talking to a psychiatrist, so I probably, I probably interpret ego in, in a slightly different way uh, from you. Uh, but in the layman's, in the folk psychology sense, no, you know, it, 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 it's certainly important. Mm -hmm. we, we, all, we all have self-models yeah. and we all have expectations about the kind of thing we are and we play to that and we try to fulfill um, those, um, those um, aspirations and predictions about what I will do if I'm this kind of person. And of course, that kind of person is usually defined by your, by your ego. Great. And it could be the most important quality you have gained while, yeah, in this work, and you have to maintain. What could be the most important quality you have to maintain? Um, I think um, focus on the um, um, on 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 the big questions, the big unknowns. Um, mm. Always listen to everybody. Everybody has something useful to say. But as long as it is it is heard in relation to the big questions, the important questions. Wonderful. Yeah. And lastly, what would be the best advice we given to you and was it life changing? Whether professionally or personally, the best advice was given to you. The best advice. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a rather trite answer, but but the best advice was the advice given to my uh, by my father to me when mm. I was about. 13, when he told me to, to, to read Sir Arthur Eddington's Space, Time and Gravitation. Mm. I, won't, I won't explain why, but it, was, it changed my life. <laughs> okay, that's great, yeah. And um, because we couldn't end, do you have any final words you'd like to say for the audience listening to you? Any final words you'd like to say? No, not, no. I, I've spoken far too much already, but okay. you're brilliant in terms of teasing out all my favorite <laughs> favorite issues so thank you very much indeed so thank you once again for the call it was such an honor to have you and i really enjoy listening to you so thank you once again for your time such an honor to have you thank you thank you, babe. Bye thank, bye, you. Bye. So thank you thank you